A reading from 1 Peter. Since you have purified your souls in obedience to the truth for sincere love of the brothers and sisters, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall off. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So let me get us caught up before we dive into uh, verse 22 of uh, chapter 1. So if you're you're going to summarize what we've covered the past two weeks, I want you to think of the first 12 verses dealing with all about salvation. How God causes us to be born again in verse 2. The role the Holy Spirit plays in that and that the Holy Spirit will work and complete the sanctification process, which the text literally says in verse two, allows us to obey Jesus. And with the first 12 verses, it's so magnificent. You know, there's this inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. God's done all this work for us freely as we have accepted it. When we come to verse 13, we see a transition, the word therefore. And what that should tell us, there's about to be an exhortation coming our way. And really what it is, is essentially what Peter is saying is God's great gift to us requires a response. It requires an obligation on our part. Or perhaps you can think of it as a a duty. And that's what Evan uh, covered for us last week. Essentially, that we as believers have a duty to God. And there was three, if I was to summarize them, it would be that we are to put our hope in God, complete trust and hope in God. Secondly, the text says that we are to be holy as he is holy. And then lastly, our lives should exhibit or should be characterized by a type of just a reverence and a holy fear for God. So I think of it as, you know, 13 through 21 is these obligations to God, our vertical relationship in the Christian life. And then when we come to verse 22, you'll see my text says since. Once again, we're going to be followed by some uh, exhortations here. And Peter is going to draw back, once again, focus our attention to what God has done in the first 12 verses. But he's going to shift the focus, the duties, the obligations, from our obligation to God to our obligation to each other. So think of it. And that is, you know, there's that dynamic within the Christian life that is along two planes, the vertical our relationship with God, our duties to God, and the horizontal, our duties to each other. And 
if you think about it, it's, it really runs that thread, that dynamic, that tension between the two throughout scripture. You know, and when Jesus was asked, think of it this way. When he was asked, what was the greatest commandment? How did he answer that? Right? The person answered, asking that question was just expecting one command, right? Or one answer. But Jesus said, you should love the Lord thy God with all your heart and soul and mind, right? The vertical aspect, but then what does he add? And love your neighbor as yourself. So think of it this way, and it's important we hone in on this dynamic of the Christian life, the, the vertical and the horizontal, because in our culture today, individuals, even in some cases, sadly say believers want to pull those two dynamics apart, separate the vertical from the horizontal. What does that look like? It looks like someone saying, I love God, but I don't love his church. Or someone saying they love the Lord, but they're not fellowshipping in a church which he has said that he was going to build himself. So out there, there's this thought that you can, you can, you can you know, separate our responsibilities to God with what he's calling us to do as believers amongst each other. And that is a non sequitur, it's, it's, it's illogical, it can't happen, you can't pull them apart, they're uh, inextricably linked. So that's what we're gonna cover today, is this idea is what is our duty to each other. There is three duties to God. Peter makes it easy for us here from the horizontal aspect and he just summarizes it in one thing we are to do and that is to love each other. And uh, although it's just one, that is a tall order and a, a tall task based on, as we'll get into the text here, how he describes we are to love. I came across a poem that I think captures the challenge of us to be faithful to what he outlines and what God wants to, to do to, to love each other consistently in such a pure way. The poem says this, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. So it's a tough task, it's a tough uh, duty that we have to fulfill, but let's walk through the text and see what God says. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth, right? He's drawing us back to the first 12 verses. We have obeyed, we heard the gospel, we heard the truth. We've obeyed that, and that resulted in our purified souls. Past, present, and sins were forgiven at the moment we placed our faith in Christ. As we've witnessed those baptisms, it's always exciting to see individuals say, you know, buried in, in death, but raised to walk in the new list of life. That's what, that, that's, what, that's what verse 22 is telling us. But then he's gonna say, there's two aspects of this love. And he's gonna say, the first is a sincere love of the brethren. And that's the word, the word, verb there for love is uh, phileo, which is a kindred brotherly love that I think we're somewhat familiar with. But then he's gonna go on here and say, 
also to, he's going to increase it, the request here, the obligation on this. And it says, we are to fervently love one another from the heart. And that word, he switches from phileo to agape love, which at its core is a sacrificial love. But that word fervently actually means, it's a, it's a physical term. It means to stretch or to strain. So think of it this way. I'm sure there's probably some physical fitness busts in here. You know, it's, it's that last rep. You know, you, you're, you're at, you're, you've given it all you can, but you're just going to give it that one more stretch. Now, I'm not a physical fitness buff, so my illustration is, when I'm reaching for that remote control TV, you know, and it's, it's always like just out of the reach. You know, I've just got to stretch and strain it. And that's what, that's what Peter's saying to us. Our, our, this, this fervently love one another from the heart, it should, it should stretch us. It should challenge us. And, you know, I jotted down here, you know, the technical definition of agape love, willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the highest good of another person at the expense of ourselves. Sometimes definitions are tough to remember. So as it comes to agape love and asking yourself, am I loving those around me, my family, my children, my spouse, others in the church, in my close circle, am I loving them the way God wants me to? This agape sacrificial love. I want you to think of two words. Two words, try to keep this simple. The first is decision, decision. Because agape love will require you to make a decision to love someone when your emotions don't want to. There will have to come a point in time where you will make a decision regardless of what your emotions say, regardless of whether you think that person deserves it. And it's a decision to say, yes, I will walk in obedience. And the second, second word is, is sacrifice. You know, and this is why love is so hard. It will cost you something. It's going to cost you your time. It could cost you money, your emotional energy, your physical energy. But it will cost us something. So think of those two words. You know, and I think part of it is, you know, how do, we, how do we get to that point is one, I'm going to outline a couple things, I think pulling from scripture and just what I know about the word of God is the one is we need to acknowledge our help. We need to tell God, God, I cannot love this person you're calling me to love. I'm, I can't even stretch. I can't even strain. God, please, please help me. Because agape love, by definition, is supernatural love, right? Beyond natural. It's not something we can do on our own accord. Let me read you a quote here that I think captures the breadth and depth of this love that Peter is calling us to do. It's, it's from an individual by the name of Philip Riken, who actually used to be the pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, not too far from here. And he is now the uh, president of Wheaton College, a, a Christian uh, university. Let me, let me just read it. I think he captures the magnitude that we can't do this 
in our own uh, self-will. There is nothing I need more in my life than more of the love of Jesus. I need more of his love for my wife. The woman God has called me to serve until death. I need more of his love for my children and the rest of my extended family. I need more of his love for the church, including the spiritual brothers and sisters. It is sometimes hard for me to love. I need more of his love for my neighbors who still need to hear the gospel and for all the lost and lonely people who are close to the heart of God, even when they are far from my thoughts. Everywhere I go and in every relationship I have in life, I need more of the love of Jesus. The place where I need it the most is in my relationship with God himself, the lover of my soul. So the first thing I think we need to do is just acknowledge this is a supernatural love that God's calling us to. And we need to get on our knees and just ask God to help me. Help me love people the way he's called me to love. Secondly, I think I, I like practical things. You know, so like I said, boil it down to two words. You know, as I was preparing for this, I came across, you know, if you're going to talk about love and what God's talked us, uh, challenging us here in First Peter 2, you know, you'd have to you'd go to First Corinthians 13, which... We hear at lots of weddings. Uh, we should be very familiar with the passage. And because it's known as the, the great love chapter. But it was interesting in that when you go through that, most of what it says about the way we are to love in 1 Corinthians 13 are basically negative things. Basically just stop, right? 1 Corinthians 13, it says this, love is patient, love is kind. So he starts out with two positives. So as you walk out of here today and say, well, how can, I, how can I kickstart this love? What do I need to do besides acknowledging and asking God? It's just stop doing what Paul lists here. He says, love uh, is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecoming, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. If we just simply apply those to our lives today, there are concrete examples. If we strip them out of our lives, we would then be loving each other in a way that God has called us to do. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, we're gonna, we've gotta go back to you know, the first 12 verses. And in you know, verse two of chapter one, Hone in on that word. One of the works that, that God has done for us, it outlines that the Holy Spirit, right, is ready and able, unlimited supply, to bring our sanctification process complete, to draw, to draw us out. So, always remember when you can't go further, to a certain degree, yes, we can't love in a supernatural way that God has called us to do. The Holy Spirit is ready, willing, and able to move us forward in the way that God has called us to do. As we move forward here in verse 23, once again, you'll see him harking our eyes, our focus back to the first 12 verses. For you have been born again, right? Chapter 1, verse 3. Um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy had caused us to be what? Born again to a living hope. So Peter's 
going back to that foundation, said, because you are born again, and he describes how we're born again, not a seed which is perishable, but he's talking about an imperishable seed, which he says is, is the word of God. So, uh, as you think about it, you know, this is what the word of God does. It, it, it's dynamic, it, it's active. Uh, you know, Paul tells us that it's, it's profitable for teaching the word of God. It's for reproof, um, for correction, and most importantly, for training in righteousness, the sanctification process. Think of it this way. You know, I wonder as, as Peter's writing here, talking about that there are two different types of seed, did his, did his mind go back to, obviously we have it outlined in Matthew ch chapter 13, the parable of the sower, or I like to refer to it as the parable of the soils and the four different types of soils. It is safe to assume that in the three years that Peter walked with Jesus, that he heard this parable multiple times because it's, it's so important. And that, that, that parable says, you know, the word of God's seeds get scattered about and, you know, there's three bad types of soils. There's hard, there's rocky, there's thorny, but the fourth soil is good soil. And what it says in that, in that parable is that if you take the seed, if you take the seed and you put it in good soil, in the heart of you and I, what this text says in Matthew 13, it says it produces and keeps producing a bountiful harvest, 50-fold, 100-fold. There is no end to that. So as you think about the parable of the sower, I want you to understand you are the farmer. I am the farmer as a believer. And that's what Peter's saying here to us. You know, you just don't, if you talk to a farmer, I mean, if you want crop, if you want harvest, you got to plant. So what Peter's saying to us, we've got to take that seed, which is the word of God, and put it into our hearts and allow it to do its work. In verse 24 and 25, Peter here just, he, he is, is quoting Isaiah chapter 40. And I, I write in my Bible a lot. And I just wrote these two words, contrast and perspective. And what he's going to do, he's going to contrast the things that we think, you know, are great or splendor. And he reminds us in a pretty jilted kind of fashion where he's going to say, all flesh, all flesh is going to die. He says, all of the glory of the flesh, every accolade, every great thing, that we could do in this life or others can do. You know what Paul, Peter says? It, it, it just, it goes away. It fades. But, and he's trying to elevate the excitement to get energy about the word of God and what it can do. So he does this, he does this contrast for us. As you read through this, you know, I think, I didn't write it down, but it, it kind of harkens to the brevity of life. You know, for those who are the younger folks here today, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, ask others how quickly life will go by. You know, the scripture says it's like a vapor. It's here today and then gone tomorrow. 
I would really encourage you, the younger individuals that are here, the, the, the farming, taking that seed and, and putting it in your heart, don't start it down the road, don't start it when your life is a little bit, start, start that farming process, start that farming process today. You know, it's interesting as I, you read through this passage here, and Isaiah is writing that during a very difficult time. He sees the, this army coming in about to take his people, his, his, his family, his nation away into judgment. And I'm sure he's reminiscing, thinking about that, but then he puts it in perspective and says, you know, regardless of all that, that's going to end, and there's a promise of future restoration. But he realizes that there's so many things in life that are transient, but the Word of God is not one of them. And it's interesting in that when he does that in the context of judgment, Jesus does the same thing. In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, which is also a very tough passage to work through, as he outlines the tremendous judgment that is about to come about upon the earth before his physical return, he inserts that same line of thinking, that thought, when he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word never will. There's an eternal nature of this. So let me just summarize to say, you know, Peter here is saying we've got to get the word of God in our heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to do the sanctification process. Let me read a quote to you by John Piper, a fairly well-known pastor, talking about the importance of this. He says, if you don't read the Bible daily, if you don't memorize it in part, if you don't linger over the Bible and meditate on it and remember it and muse on it, the best you can hope for is a weak Christian life. That's, that's a challenging word, and I don't think we're here today. You're, you're coming. We don't want to be a weak Christian. So I, once again, would strongly advise you to do that. How do we do it? Peter says it's just not enough to say, I, I want to do it. You know, I'm going to do it. He actually goes a different, takes a different angle and says, the key is to create a hunger. Literally, my text in, in, um, says a longing for us. Your text might say craving. You know, that's the key. We've got to reactivate kind of our spiritual taste buds and create in ourselves this, this craving that, that can only be fulfilled by the word of God. You know, and he does this in verse 1 of chapter um, 2 by saying basically we have to remove some things before we do that, which is interesting because normally, you know, if we want to get into the Word of God more, which, praise God, hopefully you've done that. We're now three, week 3 of January. Hopefully you're on at least some type of Bible reading plan. Even if, it, if you just read, read one verse a day. What, the, what Peter's telling us is the word of God is powerful. It's, you know, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, can pierce both to both bone and marrow, and it can do something in our, in our lives. But typically, the, my thought process is when I want to try to maybe increase my desire for God's word, get into the uh, word more, 
I tend to think logistical, and perhaps you do too. What I mean by logistical is, I try doing them in the morning, let me try doing them at night. I try the afternoon. I try doing it at this place in my apartment or my house. I'm going to do it in a different room. I'm going to change the time I leave to work or, you know, get the kids off to school and so forth. It's all logistical. Now, to a certain degree, logistical is important, right? Because Jesus, or Peter walked with Peter for three years. And he saw how Jesus would get alone with his father. So I don't want to downplay that. But Peter doesn't go there for us. He basically says, no, this is a spiritual exercise that we need to go through in order to create this craving and desire to eliminate these kind of what I would call appetite suppressants that are toning down our desire to get into God's word. Now, I was trying to think personally a dynamic in my life where I crave something at the same time I'm trying to tone this, this craving down and kind of suppress it. And the only thing I can come up with was these cookies that Costco sells. Now, yeah, that's, that's Sam. I, I don't even look at them. Please do not zoom in on the calorie count of these things. And this is separate from the message. They're incredible. That's, a, that's just a warning. That's just a warning. They are incredible. You know, and I, was, I long for them, I crave them, and I was like, well, obviously they're not the healthiest. And I always put my wife in a bind because she knows I love them, and she asks, well, should I buy them, right? I say, yeah, you know, I'll come up with excuse, and we need them, so when people come over and so forth, but I, I just want to fulfill the craving. But I add something to it to maybe suppress the desire, and I ask her when she buys them to hide them from me, to hide them, hide the cookies, these wonderful, you know, raspberry crumble cookies somewhere in the house. How do you think that works as, as, as suppressing Pat's craving for these wonderful cookies? Not so much, right? Because I, I know they're in the house and out of sight, out of mind doesn't work because I, I know they're there. I start thinking about them. I start longing for them. And then I start craving, and at a certain point, I basically will turn into Indiana Jones, <laughs> right? My wife over the years has become a good hider, but I will find them. The suppressant of hiding them doesn't work, but what Peter does unfortunately tells us that there is a suppressant to our desire craving the word of God that actually is quite effective. And why don't we walk through these appetite suppressants, so to speak, to see what Peter says, we've got we've to remove them. And that's what I see in verse 1 here. It says, therefore, either get rid of, putting aside, or, or, or lay aside. So it's interesting in the, in the sense that um, of these five, you know, um, if I was to say, if we were to get together and say, look, there's certain sins in our life that um, will suppress our desire to crave and long for the Word of God, which sins would come to your top of your mind? 
you know, would it be the, the malice, the guile, hypocrisy? Not me. I, I would think more bigger, grosser, public sins. And to a certain degree, obviously, all sin will serve as a suppressant. All unconfessed sin will serve as a suppressant, you know, from um, our desire to um, understand the Word of God. Um, but these five, these five, and the key is to lay aside, to take off. And that word lay aside is the same word that, um, um, that Luke uses in Acts chapter 7 to describe the unfortunate event of the stoning of Stephen, where it says the religious leaders laid aside, literally took off their outer garment and laid them at the apostle at that time, Saul's feet. And that's, that's what the text is saying here, lay aside. And it also, so you'll see three times the word all. I, I look very carefully at that word all, what it means in the original language. You know what it means? It means all. So this is, unfortunately, these five are not, I, want you, I don't want you to view them as like, oh, this is like, five multiple choice sins. I'm just gonna work on one right now and maybe work on it a little bit. It's complete, we gotta remove it in our entirety. Or it's not like Wordle where just one of the five fits, the other ones you're gonna try and oh, it doesn't fit. But what he is saying here is that, you know, these are um, five sins that we absolutely need to remove. And if we do that, we're promised here that the craving, the desires for God's word will come about. As we, as we walk through these, these five, I just want to articulate something to you. If, you, if. if you remember, besides the raspberry crumble cookies, I want you to remember this about the message, this adage, okay? Hungry Christians are healthy Christians. Let, let me tweak that a little bit. Spiritually hungry Christians are spiritually healthy Christians. We've got to remove some of this stuff. Let's walk through them quickly. Malice. And you read through this and you say, is that, is that, is that, is that true of me? When I, I was looking at some of these definitions of what it is, it's just, they're just so ugly. And I think why Peter's focusing on these five is that Hopefully the more graphic sins we're aware of and we're confessing, but these are kind of internal sins. We can't really see, you know, the sins. And particularly, as what he's called us to do is love each other. These are relational sins. And if they're present in our, in our hearts, there's no way we could, you know, fervently love someone. Malice, you know, it's satisfaction when we hear some bad, something bad has happened to another Wishing ill will on someone comes from an unforgiving spirit. Guile, your text may say deceit. I wonder, as Peter was writing this word, if he, not that he would chuckle, but the word literally means basically to bait a hook. To bait a hook. And as a fisherman, he had probably done that thousands of times. You know, it's, to, it's, it's trickery. To catch with bait. Deceit, manipulation for personal gain. 
The third one there is hypocrisy, and it's actually in the plural. It says it's hypocrisy, so not just a state. It's just maybe going into an environment like a church and feeling that we need to maybe put on a, a, a mask, so to speak. You know, I think all of us here, particularly Ogletown, you should feel free to go to a pastor, an elder, a shepherding member, someone, even a brother or sister here, and just say, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm sorry, don't, don't think you have to put on a mask. If you have that conversation, which I hope you do, because the Christian life is, is tough. It's, it's, we're always struggling to some capacity. You're not going to encounter someone that's going to say, well, let me think. I've got to think the last time I struggled. Let me go back in my memory lane here. You're, you're not, going to, not going to encounter that. The fourth one is envy. Also in the plural, envies, feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of someone else. You know, it's interesting, preparing for this, some point out that envy creeps up in, like, in close proximity to ourselves. You know, yesterday I was watching a woman's triathlon. And it was, it was amazing. Now, I'd like to get there someday, but I, I, didn't, I wasn't envying them because I, I can't relate to that. But if someone talks to me about where I work at, maybe a certain promotion, or if I start thinking about the car I drive, the house, or my children in comparison to other children, my point is be careful. Envy will creep up and enter your space in your most closest confines. Lastly, the last one is slander, to speak down about a person or diminish someone before others. Those things, Peter's saying, get rid of them. Take them off. To be able to create that space where a hunger, a desire, a craving for God's word could take place. Verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by you may grow in respect to salvation. I know there's some expected future, future fathers here. Just a word of advice here for Lord willing when the baby comes and your, your turn for bottle duty. You know, if there's time, whatever that time is, comes to feed that child, the baby, I would suggest that you prepare for it. So if it requires that the bottle be heated up, that you're ready at that time, that you don't forget about this time, because if you miss that, you will hear an audible illustration of what craving looks for. So ju just a word of advice. But the key word I wanna hone in in here is this idea as, as we crave the word of God, allow the word of God, the seed to take up, you may grow in respect to salvation. It, it's interesting. That word grow is in what we would call, it's, it's a passive verb. You know, we, and what it's, what it's illustrating to us, we don't do the growing. You know, the verb there about lay aside is in a different type of verb, which illustrates a combination of God working through us, enabling us to lay aside. It's not active, it's passive. And what it means is that we have the responsibility, we're the farmers, we've got to get the seed into our life, down into our hearts, but God does the growing. We're, we're, as an object, 
uh, you know, this act of growing is passive. It just happens to us by the hand of God. Think of it this way. In 1 Corinthians 2, uh, Paul says this when a little bit of a, maybe a, a dynamic came up between him and Apollos. He said, Paul reminds them, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. So I just want to point out, we, God will just do the growing for us if we put in the farming, the, the exercise of taking this word of God and putting it uh, in our hearts. Verse 3, if, or your text may say since, so it's an if that's true, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And it's, once again, it's referring back to our, the born-again experience. We've already tasted that. And Peter is saying, keep going, keep tasting, keep tasting. Now, this assumes that, verse 3, that we have actually tasted the goodness, the grace of God being offered to us to accept his death, burial, resurrection for us. There's probably some here that, that haven't. Praise God that you're here. Keep coming. Keep coming. But I do want to point out, and maybe, you know, you do have a desire to, to read the, the word of God. And maybe it's, you want to, Maybe understand what God says about morality and how you should live your life. Or perhaps you want to pull some principles from the, a lot of principles, godly principles in here. But I, I want to say this, and I want to be clear. Every time you look at your book, if you have not tasted of the initial kindness of the, the Lord and are tr- putting your face solely in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this book as if this is a book that what God has done for you. So every time you glance at it on your nightstand or your table, sure it has the morality, it has the principles, but ultimately this book is a book about what God has done for you. The Old Testament looks forward to the cross, the New Testament looks back to it, and my prayer is that you would experience that. Talk to me. I was 21 when I first experienced the kindness of the Lord that um, Peter is talking about. Well, let me, let me close. I was trying to think of an illustration that would kind of talk about this idea, this, this, this sanctification process, this conforming to Christ, this growing process. And I came across an illustration or um, about Ruth Graham Bell. I, I know after the raspberry cookies, you're probably you're a little bit nervous about my illustrations. But I thought this one was neat, and I thought this captured what I want to do that. And before I talk about our epitaph, there is a Chinese symbol on there. I know there's Chinese brothers and sisters are here. Please correct me if I'm wrong. What I'm told that the Chinese symbol means is righteousness, and it's made up of two symbols, lamb, and the one beneath it is I or me, lamb over me, this idea of righteousness. She lived the first 25 years of her life in China. China and the Chinese people were near and dear to her heart. And um, her parents were medical uh, missionaries. But the story here is, you know, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And what she realized, one day she was driving and she came across this construction zone. And uh, it dawned on her that going through a construction zone, now we're in Delaware, so this is a very applicable illustration for us. Going through a road construction was a metaphor for the Christian life. 
And so there's points of a construction zone where you slow down, there's points where you stop, there's detours, there's that one section which we all love where the car just boom, 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 because they're tearing up the road. And then that, that lovely one where the car just bottoms out. So those are some of the experiences of a, maybe you've come to a standstill in your life, you know, dead stop and you're asking God why. There's a detour, you're asking why. Just know that God, if we yield to him, that he will bring about this construction, the end of the construction, ultimately is the culmination of the sanctification process, which theologians will call glorification. So I wanted to just close with a question or two. It says, how is God's construction project in your life doing? Good progress, standstill. How is your spiritual appetite on a scale one to 10? Do you read the Bible? Is there a craving to get into the scriptures and get to know God better? Are there any sins that he outlined, those five, present in our life? I just want to remind you, there's nothing more important in our lives than to be growing spiritually. And it's my prayer that God will help increase our spiritual appetite for his word. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we see the promises of scripture and we see a road ahead. And maybe we're in a construction zone right now and we're confused. But Lord, we just pray that you would give us the, the ability to throw off some of these sins, Lord, that may be cooling, toning down our desire to love, to crave your word. And that's our prayer, Lord, that you would just create in us a, a tremendous desire, literally crave the word of God, and that ultimately, Lord, you would use that so we could love others better. Amen.